Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. It'll be a wonderful hour with Dr. Glenn Pickering. We're going to talk about overcoming our three biggest fears. Let's tackle that today, and we'll find out what they are in just a minute. If you go to the Psalms, you're going to find tons and tons of verses that are going to help and encourage you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You can find lots and lots of strength in Psalms. All you have to do is open it up, start reading. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Though, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's just tons of great passages loaded all throughout Scripture on dealing with our fears. And our guest today for the hour is Dr. Glenn Pickering. He is a psychologist. He is a pastor. He is an engineer. He's an all-around super thinker. And he probably goes to three or four months of meetings a week, <laughs> I'm guessing. That's not about right, Glenn? Uh, yeah, yeah five, really, but I hate yeah. to bring that up. <laughs> All right, let's talk about <laughs> overcoming our three biggest fears. I get a feeling I know the first one. Yeah, that fear of being alone? Yeah. Because Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right. I always think that um, God makes us one promise. We have this big fear of being alone, which I want to talk more about in a minute. And God understands that, which is why always God's one promise to us is that I'm always with you. So we think we're alone or we're afraid that we're alone, but of course we never are. But the fear that we are can really, really get a hold of us. And, um, and this fear actually is the easiest one of our fears to understand. Um, I was listening to a Christian sociologist talk a while back, and he said this fascinating thing, that right about the time humans were starting to walk on the earth, there were several species sort of similar to us, and none of them made it, but our species did. And he said, as nearly as they can tell, it's because ours was the only one that lived in community. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Because all by ourselves, we're just too easy to pick off in like every possible way. And so we've understood literally since we were walking on the earth... That living in community, being together, was literally essential to our lives. So, we have this huge fear then of being alone. And that fear, I'm going to talk about some other ones that don't make so much sense, but that one actually does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so deep in us. It's like our most primitive fear, I think. And it could be triggered pretty quickly, can it? Oh, my goodness sakes. It doesn't I, take um, much. No, I... I talk to some people, uh, I talk at some seminars sometimes. I'd say to people, well, like, give me your biggest fears. And they'll talk about public speaking or fear of making a mistake or fear of being embarrassed in public. And I say, you know, let's take each one of those. Okay, fear of making a mistake in public. Why is that so fearful? Because then people won't like me and then I'll end up all alone. Fear mm-hmm. of rejection because then I'll end up all alone. Or, like, it's like every one of our big fears, those ones just really grab us, are yeah. based on the thought that I will end up alone. And that fear is just really, like I say, it's so old in us and so deep in us that you're right. It doesn't take a lot to trigger that one because it's so 
prevalent in us. So whatever the issue, you chase it down the rabbit hole, and at the end, it's you're alone. Right. The fear is I will end up all alone. Yeah. That's I, crummy. I've, uh, I've talked to, you know, I do a lot of counseling, especially marriage counseling. And oftentimes couples will come in and say, Glenn, we haven't had any real marriage for 12 years. We just live in the same building, blah, blah, blah. Or there's this terrible marriage that they're in or this icky relationship that they're in at work or who knows what. And I'll say to them basically, well, why are you still in it? And you know what the answer is? Because I'm afraid of being alone. Mm -hmm. That fear just really keeps us a lot of times from making decisions that are actually in our own best interest because we get so caught up in that. Even the... um, even the secular psychologists understand that, like Abraham Maslow, who he studied the sort of the hierarchy of needs that he called it. He said our most primitive needs are food and shelter, of course. But then as soon as we have those two things established, the most important thing to us is belonging. So, I mean, we just have that wanting to belong so deep in us. And it's just important to know that that's true, that we are literally created to be in relationship with God and with one another. That is a passion for people to find a place oh, where they gosh, fit yes. in, where yes. they'll be accepted, where right. they will matter. Right. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, you know, I've been on your Real Recovery show a lot, so I know you understand about addictions. And one of the things I've talked about with you on that show from time to time is about how my powerful belief that every addiction is driven by this really intense sense of loneliness, that... um which is why I said to you a long time ago that the one thing every 12-step group has in common is that it's a group. I get together and I tell my story and you listen, you tell your story, I listen. We start to form real relationships with real people over time based on actually getting to know them. And that's actually, hmm, how can I say, this is the one place where me and the 12-step group disagree just a little. They think the ultimate goal is sobriety and I think the ultimate goal is to be in right relationship with God and with other people. Now, sobriety is a necessary step to that because I've checked out. I don't know how to do relationships. But, mm-hmm. but sobriety is just a step towards being able to create those relationships with God and others, which is why, you know, people talk about there being dry drunks. It's like, right, if you, haven't, if you don't drink anymore, but you still are not connected to God or to other people, you're just a walking addiction waiting to happen. You'll probably trade that addiction for another one or yep. you'll just probably. end up relapsing. Or you'll relapse. That you yep. left. Exactly, because... Yeah. Because you cure the symptom, mm-hmm. the behavior, but not the actual disease of being disconnected from people and from God. Mm-hmm. And that's, I always think, people who don't have enough other people or God in their life, it creates this hole in them because we really were created to be connected. And that hole is so painful, you just can't live with it. So addictive people are like, if I can just get enough alcohol, enough prestige, enough money, enough sex, enough attention, enough something that will fill up that hole in me. And I always think, right, it's like looking for an external solution to an internal problem. Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there that's going to fill up the gap inside of me. So this is kind of the big foundational fear, isn't it? Yeah, for me, I think so many of our fears are based on this. And this is the one that we all have. Like, I'm going to talk in a minute about more individual fears that are based on our specific experiences. But this one isn't based on any specific experience we have. We are literally, we all have this really deep concern about mm-hmm. not wanting to be alone. Mm-hmm. Because the rejection, the loss, right. it'll all eventually in our minds right. put us in a state of isolation right. and, a, and loneliness, right? Right, exactly, in that sense of being disconnected. Right? Yeah. Boy, nothing triggers anxiety more than that, I yes. would guess. In fact, I believe that the belief that we're alone is the source of all anxiety. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love for you to say more about that. Well, I... I wish I had a little um, easel in front of me because I'd show you how I spell anxiety, which is with a great big I right in the middle. 
Okay. As soon as I have thoughts like, I have to take care of this, I have to be responsible, I have to fix this, this is up to me, I have to make sure that dot, 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 the instant I have those thoughts, anxious is how I feel. The instant I tell myself it's up to me, so I'm telling myself I'm alone, I will be anxious. Mm-hmm. Which is why God, every time God or an angel in the Old Testament, in one of the call narratives, you know, the stories where God or an angel calls somebody to go do some mighty work, always a person tells God or the angel why they can't do it. And, and God always says, be not anxious, for I'm with you. It's like, right, as soon as I think, oh, I have to do this mighty work. See, I'm, I'm doomed already, and I know I am. And I'll get anxious just thinking I have to. But God's like, but don't be anxious, because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send people to walk alongside you. I'm just asking, will you do your part? Oh, and then they go. Because <laughs> they get, oh, I'm not alone. Because mm-hmm. that fear literally paralyzes us. So... People say, well, Glenn, what's, what's the cure for that? And I don't know if there's a cure for that, but I know what we need to do, and that is to live in community. Now, how can I say? But that means intimate community. I can gather with a group of people for an event, walk away having never actually met any of them, and walk away just as lonely as when I came. Mm-hmm. It's not more so. So it's not just about gathering. It's what we do when we gather. So in the 12-step groups, for example, they talk about their struggles and their triumphs. In church, sometimes we do the prayers and concerns, because if we understand your joys and your concerns, that's when we actually get to know you as a person. I, uh, I used to tell this story about my Aunt Lorene, who was out to lunch with me one day, and she said, Glenn, I like you so much better now. And I was a little <laughs> taken aback by that. <laughs> and she said, no, no, I don't mean anything bad by it. But she said, I've always admired you, looked up to you, but you're always sort of like this stainless steel ball. Perfectly polished, no seams. I could admire it, but I couldn't find a way in. Mm-hmm. But now you talk with, to me more about your questions, about the circles you're having, you come to me for advice, and she says, I just, just so much easier now to find a way in. And I understood from that that we connect with each other on the level of our struggles. So if I'm going to go to a Bible study, for example, and somebody just wants to preach to me about what that passage means or who knows what, and that's all we're going to talk about, I'm not going to walk away feeling by, I feel so connected to the men or the women in my Bible study. But if each of us are going to talk about what that passage means to us, or a struggle that helps us to understand, or a way that it encourages us, or somehow that it's meaningful to us, see, now we're forming community. So we don't form community by just talking theology. We form community by talking about how, what does this mean to me? How does this affect me? How is this inspirational to me? What was the down moment I was having that this was so helpful for me to understand? Then we're forming community. So it's important to understand Community doesn't require just that we get together. It's that we be transparent and accepting of one another when we get together, which, you know, it's harder with COVID, I get. But it's important to understand, okay, if you just think about what are the groups you get together with, work, school, church, doesn't matter. What could you do to help that group be one step more intimate, be a little more open to sharing, a few more questions, a little better listening, really wanting to understand not just what happened to you, but why was that important to you? Suddenly we're in a whole different kind of conversation or actually creating community, which is so important because that fear of being alone will really get a hold of us. It will keep people in abusive relationships. It will keep people stuck in jobs that they don't even like. It will keep people from striking out and creating their own business, even though they feel called to do that. It will feel, make them uncomfortable signing up for a ministry that maybe they haven't done before because they think, what if I fail? And then they think, and then I'll be alone. Nobody will like me. And it's just so important to understand we need to live in community where we share honestly with each other on some personal level so we walk away feeling like, I got to know you better. 
Mm-hmm. That's critical. Glenn, doesn't doesn't laughter kind of prove our humanity? Oh my goodness sake! Isn't, right. it, isn't right. it important to have some laughs about some things you might try that you don't have great success with? And right. that doesn't and, mean you you have to feel like you're just a failure. You no, in say, fact, laughing about it, it prevents us from going there. It's a disinfectant. Exactly, that's yeah. what I think too. Yeah. I went to this one show, Triple Espresso, one time a long really? time ago, and it was so good. Just really? really helped me lighten my mood in so many ways. I couldn't even tell you. I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about that break time. Well, I think we got plenty of time right now to hear more. <laughs> but actually, we don't. We are going to go to break. Dr. Glenn Pickering is my guest. Go to glennpickering.com. G L E N N P I C K E R I N G. We're talking about overcoming our three biggest fears. Number one is the fear of being alone. Number two is up next. Be right back. Pickering, we're talking about overcoming our three biggest fears. Fear of being alone is number one. And I think before we move on to number two, Glenn, I think we've got a little bit more work to do on number one, talking about uh, shared victories. Yeah, thank you. I, we talked a little bit about sharing our struggles, which is one great way to connect mm-hmm. and actually form community, and it's, that's powerfully true. The other way, which I haven't given as much thought to it until over the last few years, to be honest, are also our shared victories. The reason why team sports are fun if they work, and I've been on teams that didn't, so, but um, is that you get that sense, not just that something great happened for you, that something great happened to us, that you were part of this thing bigger than yourself. If there's a ministry that goes really well and you were part of that, you know you were part of something bigger than yourself. Or even, honest to gosh, even if you're in a school play and then afterwards, you know, you go to the cast party, this is everybody celebrating their mutual success or mutual victory. And there's something about doing something well together. I was thinking, for example, if you go work in Habitat for Humanity, if you're working off in one corner and somebody else is working on some other corner, you are not going to have that sense of a shared victory. But if you're hauling lumber together and carrying it together and nailing things together and painting side by side, and so when it gets done and you both look back and think, wow, we did that. So you mm-hmm. have that sense of that shared victory. So I just see, just like it's easy to have Bible study that's still not intimate because we just talk about the uh, theological meaning of that passage. It's the same when people get together for work projects for church. It's like, that's great. But if we're not actually working together on that project, it still does not create that sense of community or bondedness that we're actually looking for in doing that ministry. So it's important not just to get together, but to think carefully if you're a leader about how is it that we're going to be when we're together and what are we going to do to help create that sort of shared experience, either a shared struggle that we've gone through or shared victory. And both of those are important for helping us to overcome that sense of being alone. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you might get five volunteers, but don't send them all to five different places. Right, exactly. there won't be a shared experience. Right, exactly. the work might get done. The work might be done, but there will not be a shared experience. And mm-hmm. each of them will actually come back home feeling more alone than when they started the project, which clearly is not the, not the goal. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Uh, can we move on? Yeah, move please on do. to fear number two. Okay. So, yeah, number one is the fear of being alone that we all share. And it's the one, like I said, that makes the most sense. And it's not based on any specific experience. We come into the world thinking that all of us do. Second, there's this fear that are based more on our personal experiences. There's a, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala that keeps track of things that are hurtful to us or dangerous to us. And every single thing we do as we're going through our day, our amygdala is always comparing now to then. Is there anything that's happening now that looks similar to that thing that happened that was hurtful to us or dangerous to us or where we got hurt in some way? 
And as soon as that little amygdala part of our brain thinks there is something similar, it sends out this burst of adrenaline into our system that activates us, that sort of whole fight or flight thing. Um, and it's, it's about th- things that are specific to us. So, for example, we can get triggered by sounds. If, uh, if I was in a bad car accident, you know, eight years ago, see, even then, eight years later, I can hear somebody slamming on their brakes and hear the tires squealing, and I can start to get panic and I have sort of flashbacks about the accident. And I can just feel that adrenaline kicking in, even if it's not my car, even if it's on the other side of the highway. That sound, because it is so associated with me with that bad experience, my amygdala will think, oh, no, <laughs> and kick that adrenaline in so fast. Or I'm certain people, you know, if, uh, if you were raised by someone who, when they got angry, got really loud, and then bad things happened, you can just be with a person who sort of talks loud normally, and your amygdala is going to get triggered thinking, this sounds a lot like what happened just before something bad happened. And mm-hmm. again, the adrenaline gets triggered in us, and we're ready to start running. Voice tones can do it. If you were raised by someone who's kind of critical and you sort of a harsh tone and they were critical of you, you know, you can just hear someone use that tone of voice and then you can get triggered right away. And again, that adrenaline rushes in like, oh, something bad's going to happen to me. Could be an animal. I was really scared of dogs growing up and uh, for a variety of reasons, which I won't bore you with. But, um, but even now, I have to remind myself when I see a dog that I'm okay. Because <laughs> my first response is the adrenaline one. to think I'm somehow in danger, which even though, of course, I'm not. Um, and even, um, you know, certain places or situations can trigger us too. Um, like, hmm, well, if you were ever, like, in a conflict situation that went badly and it was sort of traumatizing to you, as soon as it feels like there's any conflict in the group, you're going to start getting that adrenaline kicking in again. And um, so I just call that being triggered. I just mean there's something that happened in front of you or that you think thinking might happen and your amygdala recognizes that or believes it recognizes something that's dangerous to you and kicks all that adrenaline into your system so fast. And then we'll say, we're afraid. And it's like, right, we didn't even think about it. It happens faster than we can think. So, so we have that general fear of being alone, but we have those more specific fears to us that are based on certain experiences that we've had. And, um, and now, we teach people how to get past that by being what I call a second responder. But anytime we get triggered, it's important to just take a second, stop, just ask God for a better response, and then say that. For example, if I'm in a conflict situation or somebody else gets loud or they're frustrated with me or who knows what. I mean, not that that would ever happen to me, but um, just theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can feel that part of me that wants to lash out or that wants to shut down. I need to remind myself, those are not my only two options. And, and I'm not going to be able to do that myself. So I'm going to take two or three seconds, just be a prayer, ask God to give me a better response, and then say that. And I talk to people all the time about being what I call a second responder, giving yourself just long enough for your freedom in Christ to kick in so that you can have a different reaction. Because the amygdala will always produce that same first result, if Absolutely. I understand this correctly, because of your, your then experiences. Right. So that little amygdala is programmed to say, screeching tires, it's, I'm going to have, out, a, get I'm out, have get a distorted out. response. Yes, and I'm going to have a very intense response. Very and intense, so, yeah. And some people think, well, Glenn, once I understand this, or once I get more mature, then I won't have that response, right? And I think, no, see, that's not how it works, and here's mm-hmm. how come. So I was talking a second ago about having a second response. So I can just slow down long enough, give myself two or three seconds, and come up with a better response. And no matter how fast I think of a better response... The fastest thought we can have is about 250 milliseconds. 
That's if we're thinking really fast. That adrenaline kicks in our system in 25 milliseconds. So right. as soon as our amygdala thinks there's something wrong, that adrenaline kicks in in 25 milliseconds. I cannot possibly have a thought faster than that happens. So that part of me that thinks, well, I should be able to get over that. Pretty soon I shouldn't have that. I should be able to think my way out of that. I think, yeah, that's not, that really isn't how it works. That one is so fast. So the truth you speak to yourself is, I'm going to have that first response right. based on my life Thank history you. and pattern. Right. Yep. The, the choice I now have is what you're calling a second response, where right. I'm going to ask God for a better response. Thank you. Just slow down just long enough to help me get a better choice, a better mm-hmm. response, a better word, a better action, whatever that is, as opposed to my knee-jerk reaction, which is almost never going to actually be helpful to me, mm-hmm. since I'm not actually being threatened. Okay. So... This adrenaline, right. if we live in this state of adrenaline surging throughout our bodies through, right. uh, throughout a lot of the day, we're going to end up pretty exhausted and, and fatigued, aren't we? It is very tiring yeah. to be that anxious that long, which is part of why, again, that minute second responder can be so helpful. I can't stop that initial surge of adrenaline, but I can shut it down at that point. Whereas if I keep being anxious, I had that adrenaline flooding into my system literally all day long. And people talk about adrenal fatigue or feeling worn out. And I think, right, because your body is on high alert all the time. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it doesn't matter. It's really, really tiring. I wonder if there's a lot of listeners that feel that that's part of this condition they're in right now. Where there's yeah. just this constant flood of adrenaline and yeah. cortisol that just goes surging through your body and it's right. things are being triggered because you've right. got a, a whole history of then experiences so right. then when now things pop up yep. your body just goes it's this again yep absolutely and and it will do it every time so i love what you wow. said before that part of understanding it is not to think oh i should get to the point where this doesn't happen it's about accepting the fact that that happens because judgment's not helpful if i think oh i shouldn't still be like this it's like that that's not a helpful thought. That mm-hmm. literally just gets in the way for me. Yeah. I have to remember, yes, this will happen. It's okay. I can give myself three seconds to think of something better. And um, sometimes people say, well, Glenn, sometimes you have to respond right away. And I think you always have two or three seconds to say something better than the thing you would have said otherwise, mm-hmm. which will take days to repair. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Glenn Pickering is my guest, and he uh, has this lovely offer that he always uh gives our listeners when he comes on and if you go to his website glenn pickering and that's glenn g-l-e-n-n p-i-c-k-e-r-i-n-g about halfway down the page there's an offer for a free 20-minute conversation with him and all you have to do is just uh fill out this little request form and then you guys can set up a time to talk there's no strings attached he just would like to have 20 minutes with you and whether you um just so you know, when you go talk to him for 20 minutes, you're going to get a lot of information from him because he's, he's that good. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back.
wasn't a very long break, and now look, we're back. Dr. Glenn Pickering is my guest. So uh, we're talking about overcoming our three biggest fears. Fear of being alone was number one. And then uh, we're also now talking about fear based on our own personal experiences. But Glenn, what happens if someone else is being triggered? Thank you. I um, I talked just before the break about how if we get triggered, you know, we need to stop, slow down, give ourselves two or three seconds, come up with what I call a second response. If somebody else is getting triggered, like we say something or who knows what, they we all have our own little spots where we get triggered. So if, I, if the person I'm with at that moment, I can see just got kind of triggered and now they're either shutting down or they're kind of lashing out, which are the two things we tend to do if we're triggered. Like that's basically the fight or flight thing. So they're either going to be a little harsh or they're just going to suddenly look like they're hardly even in the room. You see somebody do that. It's important to know what I call the 52 second rule, which, okay, so I made that up, but it's still a good rule. I like it. (laughs) And here's what I know. And I've been in enough church meetings to know this is true. If somebody's wound up and somebody else is calm, Within 52 seconds or less, they're both going to be in the same place. The calm one's either going to get worked up by the worked up person, and then they're both going to be at that worked up place, or the calm one's going to stay calm, and the other one's going to meet them there, and they're both going to be in the calm place. Mm-hmm. One of those two things is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's just important to just know one of those two things is going to happen. So um, if I see the other person getting triggered, if I'm not careful, I can be triggered by their triggering. They get sort of loud or they shut down. I can start getting all weird myself. My fear of being alone, suddenly I feel like I did something wrong. Who knows what? So but it's important to remember none of that's helpful. In fact, that will just accelerate what is already turning into a bad situation. So my fit, so my second response in that point is to just stay calm. So let's say I say something to a friend of mine and they kind of get defensive or um, a little harsh or kind of shut down. I'm going to say... Did I, say, did I say something that was triggering for you? Because I want to know. I mean, A, it's a caring response, but also it's a calm response. I'm not getting triggered back. I'm just asking, did I say something that was triggering for you? Or if I'm in a meeting, a church meeting, and somebody says, and there's this big conflict in the church, and somebody stands up and says, well, Glenn, I'm so mad because blah, blah, blah. And I listen, and I say, okay. So the three biggest concerns that you have are number one and number two and number three. Yeah, because yeah, da, 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 da. Okay. And the reason that's so important to you is this. Is that right? What do they say? Yeah. And then you sit down. See, if I can just stay calm in the face of that intensity, they're going to join me at that calm place. It's important to understand that's not being manipulative. I want to be so clear about it. It's the opposite. If somebody else is getting wound up and I'm letting their wound upness get me wound up, I'm being manipulated. If I'm having a perfectly fine day and somebody around me gets triggered, if I'm staying true to myself, I'm going to stay calm because I'm having a perfectly fine day. So the opposite of being manipulated is to just to sort of stay in that calmer state where you're just listening and trying to be helpful. Um, so any, any caring thing, any summary thing, any gentle thing will be helpful because it will show the other person that you get it, that you care about them, and it will help them calm down and come back to where you are. Or you can let their adrenaline kick your adrenaline in, and now we have a really, really bad conversation going. When people talk about things escalating, this is what they really mean. So it's important to remember, if somebody, even if what they're responding to is something I said or did, 
It's still important for 52 seconds. I don't have to do it all day. I literally only have to stay there for 52 seconds. And I might be praying the whole time for those 52 seconds. <laughs> but it's very likely that they're going to be able to join me there. Mm-hmm. So even if Gwen comes to me and says, Glenn, you did this thing I'm really upset about. I can just feel myself inside getting defensive. Because remember, we're not in control of that first reaction. But if I can just say, okay, cool, what what happened? Help me understand. I'm not quite clear what happened yet, but but tell me more about what happened. I promise I'll listen. Within 52 seconds, we're going to be having a conversation that actually makes sense. She's going to be telling me what happened. It probably does make sense. If I heard her, I'm going to apologize. If we just misunderstood, I'm going to say that. But but we're going to figure that one out. But if she said, Glenn, I'm so mad at you, and I get all defensive back, see, that that bad conversation can go on all night, right? We could still be having a bad day the next day. Mm-hmm. So it's important to understand. I don't have to stay calm forever. I only have to stay calm for 52 seconds. I like that. That's a Good thing to keep in the back of your head. So it's less than a minute. You just right, have to just yes. kind of stay calm. Right, just stay present with the if other you person. you can, mm-hmm. right? Right. But what if the other person that you're communicating with, their style is, I don't feel like you're engaging with me unless your your uh, your mood is elevated and your <laughs> and your voice raises, and now when, all of a sudden we got ourselves a good old-fashioned argument, uh-huh, right. and that's when I feel alive. Right. When Gwen and I started dating, she, um, she played tag really loud, and I played tag shutting down, so we're opposite in that way. So she would say something really sort of inflammatory and harsh, and I'd respond more calmly. And she would get so upset with me, like, you don't fight right. <laughs> <laughs> and I look back now, and I, yeah, I don't fight the way you're used to doing that, but I um, promise this way doesn't work. I remember she was over at my house one day. We'd been dating, I don't know, six months maybe. And I said something that irritated her. She said, I'm taking all my stuff, and I'm never coming back. <laughs> I don't know how I was able to do this, because... This was a long time ago, and I was nowhere near as mature as I am now. But I said, well, you can do that if you want. It's not what I want. I want to be clear. I would much rather you stay and we figure this out. But if that's what you want, of course, you can go. That's not what I want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just It's just important to understand. I'm not manipulating that other person. I'm just being true to myself, which means they can actually connect to me then instead of having that loud screaming argument, which is what they want too. We all so powerfully want to be connected to God and to other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm not manipulating them. I'm just giving them a chance to actually be in a conversation with me. Yeah, so it gives them a chance to change or not let their tone get too out of control. Right. And if you have maintained that 52 seconds of calm, there's right. a good chance that they'll be with you. Right, exactly. And then mm-hmm. we'll figure it out. Because there probably was something that needs to get figured out. I mean, mm-hmm. mostly if somebody's upset with me, it's not for no reason. There probably is something I forgot to do or said wrong or that they misunderstood or I was too sarcastic or who knows what. Mm-hmm. So there's probably something in there that I need to understand and very possibly something I even need to apologize for. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not going to figure that out by yelling. Yeah. And then, Glenn, remind listeners how important is it to uh, when and where you bring something up. If you're heading out the door and you're going to join three of your friends for a (laughs) hockey game and you're in a really good mood and you're excited and your wife says something on the way out the door, it's like, ooh, you picked the wrong time, right? Right. So is there a right time and a wrong time? Well, there is, but it depends on how we've structured our life. So, for example... When couples come in to see me, one of the things I ask them is, well, when is your together time every day? And they look at me like I'm a Martian or some sort of thing, um, which, you know, I'm you autistic. I'm autistic, so I get that look a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, because um, here's what I know. Couples who have a good relationship, if I ask them, well, when's your talk time? When's your connecting time? When's your together time each day? They'll tell me when it is. 
And they will do that every day with rare exceptions here and there. Mm -hmm. If I talk to people whose relationship's not going well, like, well, when's the time you guys sit down and talk through your day? They're like, well, it's exactly the other way around. Well, mostly we don't, except sometimes there are exceptions when we do. And I think, right, see if there's not a time every day where you guys have set up to actually just connect with each other. How's your day? What happened? What's kind of on your mind? What could we be praying for? There's not that time set aside during the day that everything sort of happens as you're heading out the door or as you're in passing. And there's no time set up to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. So then there isn't a right time. Yeah. So sometimes couples look at me like I'm in La La Land, like, oh, Glenn, but I live in the real world, you know, we both have jobs, we got kids, blah, blah, blah. And I think if you lived in a real world, you would know that your marriage is the most important thing you will ever do with your life, and you would never let anything be more important than that. That's the real world. So, All right, Glenn, do we move on to uh, fear number three? I'm so up for it if you okay, are. I'm ready. Okay, so the first fear is the one we all have about the fear of being alone, and it makes sense. The second one is the fear that are based on our personal experiences, and that also makes at least some sense, at least specifically to us. The third fear, which makes the least sense, is the fears that we inherit. You know, you've heard me talk on the air a few times about the field of study called epigenetics, and that's a fascinating field. And what they're finding out is that we not only just inherit from our parents, you know, hair color and height and things like that, we also inherit certain beliefs. We have certain thoughts or beliefs that we literally are born with. And, um, and that can create all kinds of interaction patterns that people bring to me in marriage counseling. For example, that whole not wanting to be it. You know, I talk about the game of tag, not wanting to be the bad one, not wanting to be it. And that game is literally as old as recorded history. People say, Glenn, did you make up that game? And I say, well, let me tell you about this young couple who are living in the perfect relationship in the perfect garden. Serpent comes along, convinces Eve, and then Adam that really... They're not so perfect. There's something wrong with them. They don't even know the difference between good and evil for crying out loud. And they believe that there's something wrong with them. So then they eat the apple. And people always say that eating the apple was the original sin. And I think, no, thinking they needed to. Believing that there was something wrong with them was the original sin. Because God says, no, your price isn't perfect in my sight. That's what's actually true. So they eat the apple because they think there's something wrong with them. In other words, they were ashamed because that's what being ashamed means. I think not just that I made a mistake, but there's something fundamentally wrong with me. So they hide themselves with fig leaves and with hiding behind the tree, which Adam does, which I laugh every time I read that story. So here's Adam hiding behind a tree, thinking that the God who created the entire known universe with a thought is not going to know where he is. (laughs) I love that. So anyway, so then God says, why did you eat the apple? And Adam said, the woman you gave me told me to eat the apple, so I did, right? So she might be the bad one. Or God, you might be the bad one. But the one thing I want to be real clear about is I'm not the bad one. And you see kids playing the game of tag, and I think, right, they're doing exactly the same thing. They just don't want to be it. And that fear of being it is so in our brains, it's crazy. It's a really totally irrational, crazy thought. And even having that thought will wreck relationships. So... um, (laughs) Gwen and I were going to um, Minnehaha Park last summer, I think it was. And we're walking through the parking lot, going behind the van, and there's a guy in the back trying to get this baby stroller out. And he says to his wife, who's still up in the front seat, I can't get the baby stroller out. And she says, I'm not the one to put it in like that. That wow. He was just making a factual observation. I'm having trouble with it. She immediately goes to, I don't want to be the bad one, and lashes out making him the bad one. As you can imagine, that old pattern wrecks a whole lot of relationships. 
And it's like, and we inherit that belief that it's really, really important not to be the bad one. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But we inherit all kinds of other beliefs. I, um, we especially inherit certain kinds of judgment. I, uh, when I was working on my doctorate, I spent three years living in a group home with eight mentally retarded women, as you know. And so I would take them out. We'd be shopping and we'd be going to the movies or doing, you know, just out doing stuff. And it was so clear to me. I don't think anybody who saw us had a neutral reaction. There were some people who had a very loving reaction, said, oh, how can I help? There were some who sort of avoided us. There were some who looked at us in sort of disparaging sort of ways. And there were even a few people who made fun of us, which is particularly hurtful. But it's like they saw somebody different, and immediately they have a judgment about that. It's not even different in a way that's hurtful to them in any way. But we have certain beliefs about things, about how things should be. And anytime they're not, we're incredibly judgmental about that. You know, I grew up, I was an autistic kid. I knew I was different from the beginning. And boy, did other kids let me know that I was different and that there was something wrong with being different. Um, but honestly, anybody who's poor or in a wheelchair or old or overweight knows perfectly well there are lots of people who look at you and don't see you. They see a category and they react to that category because of some really, really old handed down belief that they got from who knows where. And, uh, you know, when Moses gets to the Ten Commandments, he basically says to people, um, God talking through him says, you know, if you obey the commandments, all will go well with you. But if you don't, then it's going to be bad for you and for your kids and your kids' kids. And when I was younger, I used to think, man, that's kind of a mean-spirited passage. Hey, if you do it my way, that's great. But if you don't do it my way, I'm not just going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you and your kids and your kids' kids. <laughs> but it's like, that's not what he's saying. He's just trying to say, if I develop a really messed up set of beliefs, my kids inherit those beliefs, and so will their kids. And it will mess people up for a long time. It's really, really important that we... Um, that we change our thinking about those things that are so destructive to us and make us so judgmental of other people. Which, when David was just talking about the hour before this, I got a chance to hear that talking about empathy. I think, right, because the opposite of that kind of judgment is empathy. Because mm-hmm. when we see a person and have that judgmental thought, we are not seeing them. We're only seeing an object, a category, a thing, an example of something. But we're certainly not seeing that person. Well, that's a challenge. Yeah, it is. Dr. Glenn Pickering is my guest. You can go to glennpickering.com. He has a lovely offer about halfway down the page. You can sign up to uh, get 20 minutes of consultation with him. You can talk to him for 20 minutes, all uh, at no charge. Plus, you get a free book. Plus, you get a free book. <laughs> Let's take a short break. Be right back. Dr. Glenn Pickering. Go to glennpickering.com. Learn more about Glenn. Glenn, all right. Let's talk about uh, a little bit more about epigenetics. That's a good right. word. <laughs> Say more on that. Great. I, um, at break time, we're talking a little bit about, like, we literally inherit certain things, including beliefs. For example, I was giving a talk a little while ago, you know, before COVID, when you could give talks, <laughs> which I long for those days and oh, I hope they come too. back. <laughs> um, so I was with a group of, I don't know, like 90 people, I'll say. And I asked them how many had a fear of heights, and probably like 30 or 40 of them raised their hands. And I said, out of those 30 or 40 who had that fear of heights, how many of you as a young child were dropped on your head? None of them raised their hand, of course. 
So remember I said we have some fear, that fear of being alone that's universal. We have some specific fears based on our experiences. And then we have things like that fear of heights that are based on nothing. <laughs> it's not about a fear of being alone. And it, nothing ever actually happened to me where I fell somewhere and hurt myself. Mm. But I literally inherited the belief that that's dangerous to me. So when you say like, hear it, though, Glenn, does that mean they heard it over and over from a, a parent? Or? No, the weird thing is we are literally born with those ones. Nobody hmm. ever told me to be afraid of heights. Hmm. Same with being claustrophobic. I, um, I do the same thing. Ask how many people are claustrophobic. Probably 35% of the people say they are. I ask them how many of you were stuck in a really small space when you were a child, but mostly they weren't. And, um, and we just there are just some of us who are just really born with that belief that being in a small space is really scary. Now, some people find that comforting. Some people think that feels cozy. Mm -hmm. And there are those of us who think, no, this is scary. Mm -hmm. Based on no experience whatsoever, except we still have that fear, that belief. We literally genetically inherited that thought. Now, the reason why that's so important is um, if we're not careful, we just think it's true. Same with like with those people who look at me with those retarded women, think they just have these automatic thoughts about that. And they assume they're actually true. Um, but they're not. Or if we're in a heated argument with our friend or a spouse and that adrenaline kicks in, which I want to talk about in a second, and now at that moment we don't see them as a person. We just see them as this category or this frustration or this source of resentment or this person we're angry at, but we don't actually see them. Just like those people when I was out with the retarded women didn't see them. Just like when I was autistic, the other kids didn't see me. They just saw that category or that mm-hmm. thing. Well, see, if we get worked up and the adrenaline kicks in and we're in an argument with somebody who we care about, the same thing actually happens. We literally quit seeing them as a person. We don't see them at all. We only see our own um, sort of fearful, adrenaline-driven reaction to them. And um, and this one's hard to get out of ourselves. So if Gwen and I, or if I'm with anybody else and I'm having kind of an intense reaction to what they're saying, I try and just look at them. I remember how precious they are to God and how perfectly made they are and how they're exactly the way they are and that they can be really funny or that they're really smart or anything that helps me remember that they're this person that I really care about. Because when we get caught up in that adrenaline, we literally lose sight of that because we're so caught up in our own crazy thoughts. So it's just really important to just remember, slow down, see each person in our life as the person that they are Mm -hmm. with their own gifts and their own skills and let's be honest, their own struggles. Because if I can stay focused on that godly truth, see, that I'm going to come out of my arguments with people way, way, way faster. Okay. And way more graciously, of yeah. course. So, Glenn, we've got about eight minutes left. Couldn't we tackle a few questions? That have yes, I would love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, would Dr. Pickering please elaborate on a concept known as parental alienation in situations involving divorce? Right. You know, I talked about not wanting to be the bad one, that whole game at it, tag. And parental alienation just means... There's one spouse when they have the kids who always is talking badly about the other one, how the other one doesn't really care about them. They've done so many bad things. I can't even tell you all that they've done, but if you knew, you would just hate them. And he tries to keep the kids from going there, tells the kids, really, you don't even like them over there. They're not very good to you. So eventually the kids get so brainwashed that they believe that, and then they don't even want to see that other parent. They've literally been alienated from them. And um, in Minnesota, you can actually take somebody to court for doing that. Um, but the effect on the kids is awful. Because they're getting taught to associate that person with lots of bad things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they start to develop their own you know, fears or thoughts about that person based on those experiences. And they start to think, yeah, that person is bad. 
And um, the research is really clear. The most scary thing for a kid about going through the divorce is the thought that they might lose one of their parents. And when one of their parents does that alienation of affection thing, they do lose one of their parents. It is like the worst thing you can do to your kid. And the only reason anybody would do it is because they're divorced, they feel bad about it, and they want everybody to know it was not their fault. They don't want to be it. So they go way, way, way out of the way to let everybody, including the kids, know it's not their fault. I'm not the bad one. They're the bad one. And they work so hard to make the other ones the bad one because in their self-centered fear, all they can think about is themselves. And they're so destructive to those children. Mm-hmm. Right. A listener uh, gave us this comment. From personal experience, uh, we isolate ourselves out of fear and then spend right. our time trying to fill our God-shaped hole with things that we think will bring us community. Yep. Pornography or use masks to cover it like alcohol. Yep. Thanks to the grace of God alone, I was set free. That's a nice. lovely, lovely Love comment. It. Yeah. Um, here's another one I thought was interesting. Uh, this involves, uh, is there some reason why a pastor would seek to undo community within a church? There's no sharing of anything personal at Bible study or otherwise. Prayer requests are rarely ever shared. Two, with our small congregation, I always wondered if it was for theological reasons or is it more like personal trauma, but the pastor is not very approachable without getting defensive. Right. Well, it can't be for theological reasons because Jesus said the two things we're supposed to do is love God with our whole heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. So that doesn't include defending and distancing and being disconnected or impersonal. I mean, we're supposed to literally embrace those relationships. Um, Now, there are people who have a real fear of vulnerability. I know that that's true. And sometimes clients will even say, well, I just don't want to get hurt again, Um, et cetera, et cetera. And when I talk to them about some things they can do to build up the relationships in their life, they're like, oh, but Glenn, then I might get hurt. And early on in my counseling career, I knew there's something wrong with that sentence, but I didn't know quite what. But now I understand this. I call that sentence the big lie. But Glenn, if I'm vulnerable, I might get hurt. Because the big lie is not that part of the sentence, but the part that goes unsaid afterwards. If I'm vulnerable, I might get hurt, subtext, and if I'm not, I won't. But see, if I'm not vulnerable, I don't connect to anybody. I walk through my life alone. My biggest fear is being realized every single day. I'm being hurt in the worst way possible. Mm-hmm. So the person who says that to me, Glenn, if I'm vulnerable, I might get hurt. It's saying, Glenn, I have an 8% chance of getting hurt if I do what you say and 100% chance of being safe if I don't. So then doing the vulnerable thing just seems stupid. But if I realize those aren't actually my odds, yes, if I'm more vulnerable, I have an 8% chance of getting hurt. But I have a 100% chance of getting hurt if I don't do it, at which point being vulnerable doesn't seem quite so dumb. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I get that fear of vulnerability that I think, well, I don't want to get hurt. And I yeah. think, yes, if I let people get close, I might. And sometimes I will. Yeah. But if I don't let them be close, I get hurt for sure. Mm-hmm. My friend Jim from Simsbury, Connecticut said, what about adopted kids, uh, referring to epigenetics? Do they inherit thoughts from birth parents or family they grow up with? Birth parents, for sure. Okay which is part of why it's helpful even for adopted kids to know about their birth parents because it will help them understand certain thoughts that are always running in the back of their head. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because there could be an adopted child in a family with you know maybe three other kids that mm-hmm. weren't adopted, right. and that adopted child might have tendencies or characteristics that are just so different from the rest of the family, right? Oh, for sure, in part because of you know, just personality traits, but also because they inherited a different set of beliefs that are mm-hmm. always running in the back of their head. So i got one minute to talk about adrenaline. Sure. Well, there's a study fascinating 
study done a couple, a couple of years ago now that just so confirmed what I see in so many of my counseling sessions, and it's this. When we have adrenaline coursing through our body, the blood flow to our prefrontal cortex pretty much stops altogether, which means we quit thinking. So when we're in that flight, fight or flight sort of phase, we're literally not thinking. So the words that come out of our mouth, if we let ourselves talk then, will not be thoughts that we actually generate. They'll just be the crazy ideas that are always running in the back of my head. So if one of my thoughts that always runs, I'm never going to be good enough, I can't do it right, every time I do it goes wrong, and Gwen says to me, hey, Glenn, I think you made a mistake over here, and I get triggered. Honest to gosh, at that point, I'm not even talking to her really. I say things like, see, I never can do anything right. You're always so critical. I, I can never win in this. Like I say, all those crazy thoughts that I literally inherited in the back of my head that literally have nothing to do with what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, takes Great me hour. out of the present. Go Great ahead, hour, Glenn. Thank you so much for uh, yeah. talking about overcoming our three biggest fears. Dr. Glenn Pickering has been my guest. You can go to glennpickering.com, G-L-E-N-N-P-I-C-K-E-R-I-N-G, and you can, about midway down the page, there's an offer. You can get a free ebook, and you can also, if you're so bold and so interested, you can schedule a free <laughs> 20-minute consultation. All you have to do is just fill out a little form, and there's nothing attached. It's just an opportunity to have 20 minutes with Glenn. You can get a lot in 20 minutes from Glenn, trust me. All right, we'll take... Uh, uh, that's all for the day. So we'll take a break and we'll we'll join again up tomorrow. Uh, have a great night. God bless. And I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.